Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi, everybody. Uh, Before we get into my conversation with former Energy Secretary uh, Ernest Moniz, who, among other things was the chairman of the physics department at MIT before he was energy secretary, of course. And also, as secretary, he negotiated the uh, technical details of the Iranian nuclear deal. And you may remember that during the campaign and since, uh, Trump has uh, referred to the people who negotiated that deal on the American side as stupid. So a big goal of my conversation with former Secretary Moniz is to determine whether or not uh, he is stupid. And I'm not going to give it away, but he's pretty smart. But there's one area, one area where he seems not to be familiar with something, and that is the concept of working for the man. He didn't know who... The man is. So, pretty smart. Pretty smart. And before we get into that, I want to just say something about Trump's go-home remarks uh, to Ilhan Omar, who is my congresswoman. You know, when Representative Omar went back to Minneapolis this past weekend, she was greeted by this crowd, yelling, welcome home, welcome home. And Minneapolis is Ilhan Omar's home. We know what was behind Trump's remarks. Uh, It's a tactic he always goes to, which is uh, racism. We know that when he referred to shithole uh, countries, one of his categories was every country in Africa. And Ilhan is the only one of the four women in the squad who was not born here in the United States. She was born in Somalia, and now Minnesota is her home. And, and that is the story of America. Trump's family came from Germany, which you'll remember uh, that over a period of time in the 20th century, was the shittiest shithole country in history. And I just wanted to tell you about a small city, uh, Wilmer, Minnesota, which is what I think America is is about. Wilmer is 
a city of about uh, 20,000. It's in Kanda Yohai County in south central uh, Minnesota. Minnesota is the largest producer of turkeys in, in the country. And Kanda Yohai County, the county, is the county that produces the most turkeys in Minnesota. Jenny O uh, has a very large uh, turkey processing plant in Wilmer, and that brought a lot of uh, Latinos to Wilmer uh, over the last few decades. And more recently, when Somali refugees came to Minnesota, a sizable number ended up in Wilmer and working at the Jenny O factory. In 2015, I was in my Senate office, and uh, one of my staffers came in and told me that the new PAGE class had just arrived on the Senate floor, and one of them was from Minnesota. And her principal had recommended her. She's from Wilmer. She had written an essay. Our state director was very impressed with it, and then she was very impressive in her interviews, so we recommended her to be a page. There are 30 pages. Not everyone gets a page. And they said to me, well, she's Somali. And I said, well, okay, let's go, you know, let's go down and meet our, our new page from Minnesota. So I go to the floor, and they're all in their uniforms, and uh, Muna is, of course, in her uniform, but she's the only one wearing a hijab, and she's Somali. So I go up to her, and I say, you look like a Minnesotan. And uh, she smiled. So I, I got to know Muna uh, over the whole term that she was there. Very smart, very mature, very self-possessed. So I made sure, like, when the Somali ambassador came to the Capitol to meet with, like, senators, like, from Ohio and Minnesota that have large Somali populations and congressmen and women from from those districts, uh, that she she was there. Because I wanted the Somali ambassador to know that a Somali-American girl was a uh, Senate page. About a year and a half later, Muna was chosen by her graduating class in Wilmer to be the class speaker at graduation. So naturally, I invited myself to introduce her. When I took my place on the stage between the school superintendent and the principal, I learned a lot of things about the school system. Over 80% of the graduating class was going to college. I looked at the program, which listed every kid who was graduating that day. It was like 236 or something like that. And by the names, I could see that about 60% of the class uh, was your typical Minnesota, Scandinavian, German stock. Uh, the class president was Tate Hovland. And I actually asked him, and he was German, Norwegian, Hovland. And about 25% of the kids had Hispanic names. And I'd say about 15% had Somali names. And that was the makeup of the class. And every kid by their name uh, had, not every kid, but the ones who graduated with honors had an asterisk, one asterisk for honors, two for high honors, three for highest honors. And Moon, I believe, had high honors. I noticed the Carlson twins both had highest honors. This is uh, two uh, young ladies, Michelle and Mary Carlson. 
So uh, the orchestra starts playing, and they start playing Pomp and Circumstance, and I notice that the orchestra is great. <laughs> it's just really good. And the kids in their caps and gowns are coming down, and the way they did they had a center aisle, and Muna Abdullahi is first in the alphabet. So she comes down first, and she comes down holding the hand of Michelle Carlson. Because what they do is when they get to the front, they split off, and Muna goes to the right and to the end of that row, and Michelle Carlson goes to the end of that row. The next two are holding hands, and it's a boy, a Somali boy, and it's Mary Carlson. And these kids are giving off this um, just positive spirit that, uh, boy, it made me feel really great. Okay, so the speakers that day uh, were Tate Hovland, the, the president. He gave a very nice speech. Uh, the valedictorian, Métis Marin Mera, who was born in Ecuador, and Muna. And Tate and uh, Métis got wonderful ovations. And uh, when Muna went on, she got a nice applause when she came and was introduced. I introduced her. So maybe that has something to do with it. But she got a very nice applause. And at the end, she got a standing O. So then my job was to hand out the diplomas. And now we get to that moment where they announce. They announce the graduates and they come up and get their diploma. And at first they say, okay, look, look, uh, hold your applause until the very end. Do not applaud at the beginning. Uh, just save it to the end. So Moon is first. So they say, Muna Abdullahi, the place goes nuts. And they start stomping on the bleachers. There's a lot of people sitting in the bleachers. And the parents and brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts. And, and the place just goes nuts. And it really doesn't stop. Every kid. It, it was beautiful. It's just beautiful. I'd been in Wilmer kind of a few times the year before because they had the avian flu that was killing, well, they had to kill all the turkeys. And it was a big crisis, and a lot of producers were worried that they were going to lose their entire operations. And we were able to get some emergency funding and they'll keep them on their feet. Now, were these turkey producers Democrats? Were they Republicans? I had no idea. I didn't care. I don't care. I will never care. Do they care that they have Somali refugees in their community? Yes, they do care. They want them. They need them. They need people like Muna's dad who works in IT at Genio, at their store. Um, Donald Trump has said a lot of bad things about the Somali community in Minnesota. And I think he just confuses Minnesota with some other place. About a week after the election, I spoke to the 
French ambassador to the United States in my office, Gerard Aroud. Aroud. I didn't, I just don't know French. Aroud. Anyway, he told me that in France, a Frenchman is someone who can tell you what village his family was from going back centuries. Immigrants never really get to become Frenchmen. And it made me think back to, remember that hideous massacre in Paris the year before? Here in America, again, we're all immigrants, except for, of course, Native Americans uh, who we committed a genocide against. Uh, I'm a Jew, but I'm also an American. Muna is Somali, but she's also an American. Now, uh, later that fall, this was uh, 2016, I was getting out the vote on the University of Minnesota campus, and I ran into Muna, and she told me that her, her sister had become homecoming queen, Anissa. That's who we are. In places like France, they isolate their refugees and immigrants. In America, we elect them homecoming queen. Wilmer is a great community. Minnesota is a great state. America is a great country. Do we have enormous problems? Yes, we do. Do Americans have the right to be angry about those problems? You bet. Are some of those Americans wrong about what the problems are? Oh, yeah. Does that make it harder to solve the problems? Yep. But one thing is for sure, Muna is not the problem. Muna is a big part of the solution. Her classmates know it, her community knows it, and I hope every one of my listeners know it as well. Well, everybody, uh, I'm very excited because we've uh, got former Energy Secretary Ernest Mooney's uh, with us, and uh, I was on the Energy Committee, and I first met you at your confirmation hearing, right? It did indeed, and then we worked together on some uh, uh, tribal land energy projects. Yeah, we did, and I want to thank you for uh, helping that get done. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a incredibly sad story behind this bill. I'm on Indian Affairs, or I was on Indian Affairs, and we had one of the saddest hearings that I've ever been in, and it was on adolescent suicide. We had three tribes, one from Minnesota, one from South Dakota, and one from another state, and I'm not going to say it, and you'll, you'll see why, where there had been three tribes testified where there had been a rash of kids killing themselves. And uh, it was... Uh, just wrenching, and when I had a chance to ask questions, one thing I did say was we need more economic activity in Indian country. The unemployment rate at all of these three reservations was was enormous. Mm -hmm. And I said we need employment. There's an incredible amount of energy in Indian country that we aren't using. And then uh, the other, uh, the senator from this other state, this Republican senator, he stays because 
he's junior to me, and he's got the last questions. And then afterwards, I, I, I go up to him and I say, I have this Indian Energy program that uh, it's a loan guarantee program, and so I need a Republican co-sponsor. And he said, well, okay, uh, how much does it cost? I said, unfortunately, we're just getting $11 million, but it'll leverage about $100 million in activity because it's, it's a loan guarantee program. And he said, mm-hmm. well, I'll co-sponsor it if you get an offset. Okay, he had just voted for something called the Doc Fix, which is uh, something that took care of the payments to doctors. Years ago, there was a formula put in that was too low, and we need doctors in Medicare. So this doc fix cost over 200-something, $50 billion, and he voted for it with $120 billion unoffset. And now he said he'd co-sponsor this bill <laughs> that cost $11 million, but he needed an offset. How much is a kid's life worth? How much is his kid's life worth, his children? He had kids in his own state killing themselves. And he needed an offset for $11 million. And, of course, voted for the tax cut that increased the deficit over a trillion dollars. So that was a, a, a bleak day. But you not only fought for this, but I believe every time we've talked, you've brought it up. Well, I was, I was extremely pleased that we, we really got that done. And I appreciate your, your efforts on that. I appreciate it. I, I might say, you know, you, you in the Senate, I think, led it. And I just would note that I also, in the House, uh, had uh, contacted Tom Cole, Republican, yep. uh, from Oklahoma, with a, yep. with a Native American background. And, um, and so he helped in the, on the House side, mm-hmm. which is like government broke out. We actually got, got something <laughs> done, you know, <laughs> for in both chambers. Million dollars. For 11 we should million be doing. Dollars. I mean, yeah. how much energy is there in Indian country? How much solar? How much wind? Yeah. How much biomass? Mm-hmm. I mean, we yeah, could no. get economic activity so that they could right. have mm-hmm. their unemployment is so high. Yeah. What I always felt was if we could get like 100 million uh, to be leveraged, 100 million a year for many years, uh, we could actually make some significant progress. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now... Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash 
Franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. All right. Okay, so... Uh, so you were secretary of the second uh, half of the Obama administration. I remember you helped negotiate the technical part of the Iran deal, right? Well, I, would, I would call it the nuclear part. The nuclear part. Right. Well, that's probably the more technical mm-hmm. stuff. Yes. Before you were secretary, you were chairman of the MIT... Physics department. Physics department. Yeah, I'm a physicist. Ali Salahi, my counterpart. Uh, has his Ph.D. in nuclear engineering okay. from MIT. Okay. Uh, we were contemporaries uh, at MIT but did not know each other because we were in different departments. I was on the faculty in physics, and he was a graduate student in nuclear engineering. Okay. But there was stuff to bond over. Considerable. And uh, one should not underestimate uh, the value of that uh, in the negotiation. I mean, frankly, the negotiation uh, had been going on for years, and the president felt that things were not progressing rapidly enough at, uh, uh, in early 2015, and Salahi and I were thrown into the negotiation, if you like, to manage the nuclear part. And our relationship, even though it wasn't personal in, in the 1970s, mm-hmm. but our relationship from MIT uh, was absolutely crucial. In fact, Salahi's thesis advisor, Ph.D. advisor, uh, was a, is a very good friend of mine, still still active uh, at MIT, so we could talk about him. Talk well, about the old faculty. boy network. Yeah, from well, MIT. That's right. Uh, and, Salahi and Moniz. Uh, there was actually a third person at MIT at the same time who, again, neither of us knew either. He was in the Sloan School uh, named Netanyahu. Ah. Uh, so if we had known, we probably, business we could have resolved all of this, you know, back in the 70s. That's right? the, the business school. And he was trying to do everything he could <laughs> not to have you guys succeed. Now, what's interesting about this is that during the uh, campaign, the 2016 campaign, and since, Trump would say that the people who negotiated the Iran nuclear deal were stupid. So one of my goals, Mr. Secretary, here is to um, establish that you're, you're not stupid. At least not all the time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and actually, most of the time, mm-hmm. uh, you struck me as quite smart. <laughs> uh, but, uh, OK, so that's that's Trump. And, and also, he just said everyone in negotiating. So, so Kerry was stupid and Wendy Sherman was stupid and pretty much uh, our whole team. So I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about your Green Real Deal. How do you compare it to the Green New Deal? Well, I think they're not comparable. I mean, the Green New Deal, you might say that we uh, adopt the the core principles of the Green New Deal in terms of its addressing uh, energy and climate issues, not not in terms of many other uh, uh, yeah, social issues social agenda, of importance. Right, right. Yeah. But on, in terms of the uh, climate issue, I would say the Green New Deal has two fundamental uh, underlying principles. One, of course, is you've got to go to very, very low carbon, uh, let's say by mid-century. But secondly, it says, and I think this is important, that as one is looking at uh, the policies uh, for putting in place uh, the deep decarbonization pathways, one needs to put social equity front and center. Uh, that's a big deal. I'll just give you an example sure. just to, to highlight that. Imagine uh, we had a price on carbon emissions. 
the one that's proposed by uh, the Republican secretaries of state, former secretaries of state, uh, George Schultz. Schultz and Jim Baker, uh, would start at around $40, for example. Right, so let's say it's a nice round quarter trillion dollars or, or so per year. So it's a lot of money. They propose that that money be divided up and sent all of it sent back on a per capita basis uh, to the people as a dividend, as a carbon dividend. Right. That is progressive because if you... If you model it out, uh, the lower 70% of the income distribution will come out ahead. Let's take another example. Suppose you had that same price, but instead the Congress says, and that's just what we need to help with our deficit reduction. That would be completely regressive right? because the poor would be paying higher energy prices and without, I gotta without say, the policy support. A friend of mine spoke to the CEO of Walmart. And he said the most important thing, they, they get like 130 million <laughs> Americans shop at Walmart. And the most important thing he said to Americans is the price of gas. Mm-hmm. And because once they fill up their car or their SUV or whatever they fill up, then that's how much money they have left to spend the month. And, and, and then the other piece of information he said was that people buy the most formula on the first of the month and the 15th of the month. Mm-hmm which uh, is disturbing in one way, but good in another way, which means formula is important to them for their baby. But it means that people aren't, they don't have a lot of money. And if they, if, if they're, if the most important thing to them is the price of gas and you're putting a price on carbon, they got to get that money back. Yeah. And that's, that's the idea of the dividend, of course. Right. Yeah. Instead of paying off the could, debt. Could, could I also add, it's not just Americans, but you may have heard a discussion in France uh, <laughs> some months ago about the same issue. The, oh, yeah. The, the yeah. gilets jaunes. That was very, very right. unpopular, of right. course. Right. You have to do it so, right. Going back to your question, so the Green New Deal, what we say is those are principles that guide us in putting forward the Green Real Deal. And the issue is the Green Real Deal is now formulating more and more precisely, a real program, which was not uh, there in the Green New Deal. So, well, I've, re- so I've re- now, I read your editorial on mm-hmm, it, which mm-hmm. which specifies what the program is. Yeah, and pragmatic was a good choice of words. That's our that's the first word we use. It has to be pragmatic, such as uh, to allow the building of a broad coalition. You talk about making sure that lots and lots of people aren't suddenly unemployed. Yeah, we say we can't have stranded assets, but we also can't have stranded workers. We can't have stranded communities. What are stranded assets you mean by that? So, for example, uh, uh, let's say a change in the power generation technologies. Utilities may have fossil generation capacity or infrastructure that's not been paid off. So that's a stranded asset, but very often they can recover that uh, through the rates. So they, they go to the commission and they say, look, you've... You've stranded our assets. Uh, we need to get get recovery in our rates, but stranded workers don't. There's no commission to go to to say uh, we're going to make them whole. So I think that's where okay, the, the seems... social justice theme is very very important. Okay, I want to go to the the branding here because the Green New Deal. You automatically think New Deal, but but it's green, and you go like, well, it is now 2019. And that was 1932 or 33, right? And so you go, but that makes sense. We know what the New Deal was, mm-hmm. and but this is green. And since climate change wasn't an issue in 1933, this is a new New Deal. 
And that kind of makes sense, I think, in your brain. I think the green real deal is kind of two generations away from the new deal. And I'm worried. I don't know how important it is to have a name for this that people remember. Mm -hmm. But I'm suggesting to you that before you go a lot further, you might consider another name. That's all I'm saying. Uh, we'll, we're happy to consider uh, your recommendations for another name. Uh, I, I think, don't have I, one. I think what we but were, I have a recommendation that yeah. you have one. Uh, so is that helpful? <laughs> uh, uh, not not no. yet. Uh, the, okay, uh, but uh, I think the real is also to emphasize, try to capture the idea of being pragmatic. Oh, I understand coalition why building. you named it what you did. I'm and, just suggesting. It doesn't roll off the brain. Yeah, I, 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 I hear you. And, and again, we're not, uh, we're not married to it. But the, the issue is it does capture what we think is the central element that there's no point in magical thinking about solutions. I, I had Michael Mann on, uh, the, the climate scientist. From for Penn State. Our, mm-hmm. oh yeah, from Penn State for our, our audience. Nobel Prize winning climatologist. And there's some discussion of is natural gas a transition fuel and I kind of think I've always thought of it as that and he said no because of the methane that comes off and we can't do that look first of all let me just say I I'm, I agree with you uh, in, in your at least in the implication you had that uh, that you would agree that natural gas is is a bridge I think it unquestionably is it's almost a tautology in fact uh, that it is the reality is in the United States uh, it's the coal to natural gas transition in the power sector that has driven the majority of our carbon reductions. And it's very, very substantial. In fact, and coal in our power sector has gone from roughly 50% uh, down to 27%, something like that, while gas has now shot up and is the uh, largest single uh, source of electricity in the country. And that has accomplished uh, the, uh, the carbon reductions. The issue of methane... Uh, is, 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 yeah, that's the issue is, is it counted correctly? The, uh, on the combustion to make electricity, mm-hmm. that's a CO2 issue. Sure. Right? Yeah. Now is the issue of methane leakage. Uh, and uh, I make two points. One is, uh, I think, in my view, there's a confusion over how one scores methane as a uh, climate forcer uh, and the IPCC, uh, the International Panel on Climate Change, uh, has always been very clear. We've had a consistent way of doing that for years. It's called a 100-year average because CO2 is so long in the atmosphere. And, that's and, make, and that's make a better comparison. Isn't. And methane isn't. So when you do that, there's no question there's still a net, a net benefit. But the point is that with CO2, it accumulates in the atmosphere and has kind of a centuries time scale. So, you know, uh, it doesn't matter uh, when you emit it, roughly speaking, uh, and where it, it just accumulates. So as a transition, if it's a we're, transition, the yeah. methane, by definition, Whereas, will, how, what's its time let's frame? Let's call it 10 to 15 years uh, would be a typical, uh, typical number. And so if we now work to keep 
squeezing down on that methane emission, getting it down, the target is about 1%. That problem, the methane in the atmosphere will, will, be, will be going we away. Sh- we tried to get regulations to capture the methane on rigs on uh, yeah. federal lands, and we couldn't get the Republicans to even agree to that. Well, so the, the Obama administration uh, moved forward on that, and now there's, there's an EPA is, is trying to roll those back. Uh, I think it's very important to observe. Uh, obviously, I don't, I don't support that rollback, uh, but I do want to observe that the companies, oil and gas companies, for example, the utilities that distribute natural gas are working really hard on getting the methane leaks down. Who was fighting so hard against this rule? Because they seem like... Shells well, for industry. There are, uh, <laughs> I mean, there are clearly some uh, who okay. are, but but you take all the the majors. Uh, I think they're pretty universally uh, squeezing down, and certainly that's true on utilities. Uh, I'm on the board of of one utility. To you know, I'll just be it's public. Obviously, it's a, a Southern Company. And by the way, in our earlier discussion, Southern Company has reduced coal from seventy percent to about twenty six percent, CO two down thirty six percent. Will be fifty or more uh, in the next in the next down by fifty or more in the next decade. Um, but you're working uh, and with the man. The who's who's the man? The man. <laughs> I don't know who the man is. Oh, all right. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> but he's the man. Yeah, no, but so but so this is a traditional utility, uh, uh, really working hard on run on by that. the man. Uh, well, okay, some man or woman or uh, woman or woman. But the one, uh, a woman could the, be the man. Yeah, and. <laughs> It's also a utility that distributes natural gas. Almost all of the old pipe, which is the origin of much of the leaking, has been replaced. So heading to that 1% uh, target. So all I'm saying is that out there, you have these companies that are, that are really okay, working so to do this. Michael Mann, who is yeah. with the IPCC, mm-hmm. right, does work, doesn't agree with that organization. But I, I always felt that it was a, a transition and... Loved the work that the, you know, that was done in the energy department by the labs uh, to mm-hmm. make fracking possible. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I just um, would say that the at MIT we did a pretty influential study uh, published in 2011. We started in 2008 called the Future Natural Gas, and I've often said at the beginning of the study we asked the question: Is natural gas part of the solution or part of the problem? And the answer was yes. Depends on the time scale. Initially, it's <laughs> the part. The answer was a yes to yes, both. Correct. I see. Because it. initially, it. it's part of the solution. The gas, mm-hmm. the coal to gas switch, again, is like okay, oh, so it's over 60% of our savings. Is, but in the long term, it'll be too carbon intensive. And either there will be something like carbon capture uh, or some other phasing out to a much lower carbon solution. We need to really spend. Loads and loads of resources on new technology and research. Correct. And, and we haven't been doing that. And doing it in what we've always, we always termed all of the above. It's that yep. we need every arrow in the quiver <laughs> that we can get. Uh, and so, most, uh, most people who look at this would say that uh, we underspend on this innovation budget by between a factor of two and three. Uh, and uh, that is what we need to do. Actually, in 2015, in Paris, everybody, have, by definition, remembers the Paris Agreement, but a lot of people forget 
that the first day of the Paris meeting is when the national leaders were there, including President Obama, and what was announced that day was called Mission Innovation, where we got 20 countries, including ourselves, to pledge towards moving toward to a doubling of the of the innovation uh, budget. My guess is that hasn't happened. No, we no, haven't been doing we're that maybe, under Trump. We're maybe up 10%. Uh, now, I, actually, uh, the administration has proposed major cuts every year. Yes. But here's where your former colleagues have stepped up. They have uh, not uh, followed that recommendation uh, and indeed have done some increases uh, to the energy budget. I think they would do a lot more if they could, but they're, of course, strapped in by the, by oh, the budget constraints. They're also strapped in by the Koch brothers. Um, the innovation budget has got very, very broad support, uh, including mm-hmm. uh, Democrats and Republicans. There may be differences in terms of how much and when. But, for example, right now, uh, Senator Alexander, who's in his last uh, last two years, I mean, he is proposing a doubling over And by that, years. you mean in the Senate? In the Senate. Okay, good. That's right. Yes. That's right. He's, he's but I've but uh, but I've been talking to the obviously the Democratic members, including in the House, and and there's a lot of support for the innovation budget. I wouldn't be surprised to see a strong move uh, next year, frankly. That would be that would be great because yeah. this is, I mean, it's a cliche, but this is an Apollo project. Kennedy said we go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Mm-hmm. We need to do this not because it's easy, but because we're going to die. Because it's essential, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, right. I, I, I have... and also let me just say out flat out, uh, uh, I don't, I do not uh, believe there is any way uh, to meet the deep decarbonization goals in 2050 without breakthroughs uh, in new technologies. Of course, and we should have breakthroughs in new technology, but we have to support them. We have to support support the early stage research. Yeah. Well, I was talking about the Koch brothers. I think Citizens United was uh, a turning point in Republicans saying whether they believe there's climate change. Because if they were aggressively said, or if they said it, they could get primaried. I personally believe, I, I think I'm not being Pollyannish in this, that I believe that that is significantly changed. Uh, frankly, I, I'll go out on a limb and say that I think the issue of you know climate denial, et cetera, I think it's over. Young Republicans are clamoring for a change uh, on climate. Uh, what about their, Trump in their party and Trump supporters? Uh, well, uh, uh, the the president, the secretary of state, apparently didn't get the memo, but uh, but all the members of Congress, I think, got the memo uh, from uh, from this from the polls, and and I I think it's 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 changing dramatically. Because the administration is doing things like uh, rolling back uh, mileage standards for cars and trying to do trying all to do that. that right yeah. right and and that's a big deal. Um, uh, in fact, uh, in uh, the organization that i that I helped create the Energy Futures Initiative, we did a major study just recently on California's pathways to meeting its uh, carbon targets. And in the transportation sector, which is by far the dominant emission sector in California, the number one opportunity was getting the CAFE standards, the efficiency standards, kept in place. And they're big enough as a state to kind of drive this with state laws. Especially because historically they've always been uh, uh, given the, the opportunity uh, to, to set their, their, their own standards. And uh, they're such a big market uh, that that de facto was, was, a, was, a, was a standard for the country. So thank God for, for California. Yeah. Okay. Algal fuel. We're talking about storing... CO2 or using CO2. 
algal fuel is using algae. I, I'm, I know you know, but I mean, I'm, I'm doing that for the listener because you'd think it'd be algal, wouldn't you? <laughs> algal. But it's yes. algal. That is the proper. And I learned that, I guess, at, at an algal conference. <laughs> Is that too expensive? Is that work? Oh, t- today it's it's certainly too expensive, but we love to talk about the enormous uh, cost reductions, which are real in in solar and wind and batteries yeah, that, and LEDs, et cetera. But we probably don't talk enough about the reality uh, that uh, first of all, we have to decarbonize across the entire economy, and fuels and transportation is a really long pole in that tent, uh, and that today uh, many of the alternative technologies really are still very expensive compared to the current incumbent technologies. Well, wind it's and in particular, solar. In particular, without a, a carbon a charge on carbon emissions. Wind and solar uh, can be baseload if you have batteries, right? If you have enough storage is what I'm saying. I would say, uh, yeah, well, those are two different statements. Uh, no, uh, it's one statement. No, they're two different statements. Wait a minute. Uh, I'm saying this. Okay. Let you me said, tell, me, tell, me, tell me how this is two statements, and then just, I don't want to have an argument here. But what, I think what I said is that uh, wind and solar can be baseload if you have enough batteries. An, uh, storage. First was your first statement, and then well, you said storage. Oh, okay, okay. I meant, and those are different statements. Oh, you're right. Uh, the, um, you know, and, and, and Trump said you were stupid, <laughs> and I just think he's wrong. But seriously, I think it's a really important point. Battery storage uh, right now, uh, it, it gets very expensive uh, when you start getting into the four hours of storage range. Oh. Uh, so in most of the country, it's one or two hours. Uh, that is very important for managing um, the variability of, of wind and solar. But you cannot build a system on a couple hours of storage. And so what are the other storage? Because you, you said there were two different statements. One was battery yeah, so, and one was storage. So, What's the other storage? So storage is not just battery. So the, <laughs> so, so we That's can, why it's two well, statements. First of all, we can, for example, today the biggest storage that we have in the country is pumped hydro. You pump oh, water sure. uphill and then, then let it come down when you need it and turn a turbine. Uh, Pumped hydro, there are still opportunities for more pumped hydro, but I would put that in kind of the day storage class. But we need storage for all time scales from, you know, hour to seasonal. So wait a minute. You, you store enough electricity for a season? Let okay. me. Okay. Okay. Uh, go, again, ahead. I'm, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to use California as, as, as our example. Mm-hmm. Let, let me give you a few data points, just data. From California. Okay. So in California, if you look at the wind output in a year, mm-hmm. what you find is, uh, and wind is about half of solar in, in California, uh, what you find is uh, in 2017, there were 90 days of no wind in California. Okay. There were 10 days in a row of no wind. If you're going to have your system built around wind and solar, you're going to be able to handle big periods where the weather conditions are not favorable, okay? That's one point. Uh, Secondly, if you look at large hydropower, of which California has a considerable amount, Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't appreciate how variable that is. And, of course, California, with its the drought cycles now increasing. But we have the snow mass, which is very reliable. 
uh, this year, uh, not last year. <laughs> no, no, I mean, uh, right. it's going to get less the, and less no, reliable it, it, as we no, warm. It, exactly. And they have, like, over four-year periods, large hydro could drop by two-thirds. Another point, and now here's the uh, kind of the seasonal the point. The scary part. No, the seasonal point. So let's say solar mm-hmm. is is the going to be the dominant, let's say, part in California. Well, you know, California has a certain latitude. You can even look it up. The sun has twice the output in the summer than the winter. So if you imagine mm-hmm. you have the solar ah. as the dominant thing, you better have some seasonal storage. Mm-hmm. Now, in my view, uh, almost certainly these very, very long storage periods, to, certainly to manage them in any economic way, is going to involve, roughly speaking, a fuel. For a while, that may be natural gas, and natural gas maybe with carbon capture. Maybe it's carbon-free hydrogen uh, in, in the long term. You store the hydrogen in the summer and use some in the winter, and that could be for industrial use, and uh, et, et cetera. So all I'm saying is a for system. cars. A system. It, it could be fuel cells for cars or maybe heavy vehicles. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. especially if if it's There's like all, all these different solutions. That's what you're exactly. talking. Exactly, silver buckshot, not a silver bullet. Exactly, there's multiple. I know all the and, cliches, and we're going to need breakthroughs in in a number of these. That's right. Yeah, and something like the electricity system, we are going to need storage solutions that have all of these different timescales. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to do that with batteries. Okay. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Let's talk about some magical things like uh, fusion, nuclear fusion. Mm-hmm. I, I call it magical because we've been, it's kind of been the energy of the future for 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. Or 40. Can, will that happen? Because if it does, hooray, yeah. right? On fusion, I would say advanced nuclear, both fission and fusion, uh, are very important. And we have never seen as much innovation. Uh, in those fields as we have, as, as we see today. We're talking 40 companies uh, uh, looking at uh, new new approaches. Um, a lot of capital going in. A lot of cap, private capital, mm-hmm. uh, investment capital going in. Again, truth in advertising, I'm on the board of one of these fusion companies. Clearly, as you say... You're working for the man. <laughs> uh, I'm looking for... I would say, man, I'm looking for solutions. Or you're, you're uh, the, working for uh, the men. Uh, the, and those uh, can be women. Uh, and those can be women. The fusion advantage, of course, compared to fission, is that it completely puts to rest any residual concern about safety and about waste, uh, long-term waste uh, waste storage. Which is a huge which issue. Are, which are issues, of course. Uh, but... Uh, but Fusion also still has tough uh, uh, challenges, scientific challenges to, to, to master. But what I would say, I'm going to be a little bit more optimistic and say that while widespread fusion use for uh, electricity generation is, in fact, uh, still a ways away, the important thing is I think the key scientific challenges 
uh, given the variety of efforts going on, I think we'll know whether whether we can get there within about ten years. <laughs> uh, and uh, yes, okay, I and mean that, that's that a big deal. Laugh, that's that a we'll big know. deal. In yeah, 10 years, right. whether we can... Well, that's there. a big deal, uh, because okay. then, then comes the engineering, the deployment, the capital, the right. you know, getting the capital together, et but cetera, et cetera. you're saying that in 10 years, yeah. everyone might go, ah, damn it. Could be. And everybody oh. could also say, hallelujah, we, we see what, what's, what's going to be a dominant electricity source in So you're in, saying in 10 century. years from, what's today? 2019. Uh, yeah. Uh, so 2029. Yeah. We're going to learn. Let's get on to Iran uh, in a bit, but I do want to ask about something that we haven't really talked about uh, in in this part of this equation, and I know it's part of your equation, which is energy efficiency and buildings, like retrofitting buildings. Why don't we just do that all the friggin' time? Because you can save in a uh, buildings take what thirty five forty percent of of, of our, our electricity of our energy of our energy of, of electricity uh, it's uh, no. probably more like sixty percent yeah uh, of electricity use goes uh, goes goes into buildings uh, that that's correct so if you can uh, do retrofitting it first of all talk about jobs there's jobs in both in the retrofitting and in the manufacturing of stuff right in, in the engineering and in, it, it just seems like we just don't do that enough uh, actually a, a, a important point and uh, and if you go to our energy futures initiative website you'll find an energy employment report mm-hmm. that we put out which includes state by state breakdowns one of the interesting points is if you look at the bureau of labor statistics there is no such thing as an energy efficiency job because all those retrofits you're talking about are scored as construction jobs. Mm-hmm. When we try to peel that back, what we found was a huge number of jobs, millions in in energy efficiency, like doing retrofits and putting in... In, in Minnesota, in, we right. have this thing called an energy efficiency standard that the yeah. utilities have to improve the efficiency of their customers by a certain percentage. Mm-hmm. And so they are... Uh, incentivize to make the homes of their mm-hmm. uh, users more efficient. Mm-hmm. And it, it happens. It works. Yes. And we would save yes. an enormous... I tried to get yes. this as a national standard, yes. and Republicans right. yeah. opposed it. Uh, it's one reason by, why, again, I keep going back to California as an, as an example. It's one reason why California's electricity sector is responsible for only 16% of California's emissions, and a big reason for that is over the years they have put so much emphasis on efficiency, uh, so that the electricity requirements uh, for buildings are, are are way down. So you're absolutely right; it's a big deal. In fact, again, in our study of California, we looked across all the sectors. Then, when you rack it up across the entire economy and ask which, uh, let's call it technology pathways across the economy, were the most effective, number one was efficiency. Across and, the board. And didn't I? Just, uh, I was the guy who just uh, brought that up in this conversation. Uh huh. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, buildings included included vehicles. You know why you didn't bring right. it up? Because you work for the man. <laughs> it's because you. It's because you didn't ask me the right question. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, let's try to do. I want to do a couple right. fun little things. So at your confirmation hearing, mm-hmm. uh, you said you said how long. You had been married. I did. 
And I can't remember at the time exactly what. How, how long have you been married now? Forty six point one zero four years. Okay. Well, you, and and at that time you expressed was, how long yes. you'd been married. At that time, and I was not the first to ask questions, so I had some time. Mm-hmm. And when I when it got to me, I said, "Your anniversary is this day," mm-hmm. and I was off by a day. Mm-hmm. Now, was that your fault or my fault? Um, well, we can argue, we can assign blame, uh, but <laughs> the uh, but the I can give you the reason why you're off by a day. You're actually your calculation was absolutely right. However, I only gave two significant digits. Um, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to today, I gave point one zero four. Right. Uh, so today you that. could do it precisely, I but by that. only giving two digits, uh, there was an ambiguity. So the round off error got you. Is round off considered an error? I mean, in other words, if you go no, the uh, if four goes to doesn't increase. Well, the, I mean, if you precisely, so you should have said with this number, there's a range of days. <laughs> Uh, and uh, yeah, I should and, have. Uh, and it would have included the right day, but uh, yeah. yeah. So, oh, what an idiot! Yeah. No, it's because I was trying to look really smart. Yeah, I I thought you did, okay, sort, of. You. sort of, sort <laughs> of. <laughs> Do you remember right after the Iran deal um, was agreed to? You and uh, Secretary Kerry. And Secretary Liu, the Treasury Secretary, mm-hmm. and uh, the CIA guy who was in charge of Iraq, and I'll call him Mr. Quimby. And this is in what's called the SCIF, which is the secure room. So, the, and the senators are there. I think pretty much everyone showed yep. up. Yep. And McConnell, because he was the uh, majority leader at the time, he runs the meeting, right? And so uh, you guys are there to present. And Kerry starts it. Do you remember? Yes. This? Okay. Yes. So Kerry gives a brilliant, I, I will say, it's incredibly effective. And McConnell already is pissed off. You remember this? You remember yeah. him kind of being pissed off? And so he goes like, well, uh, listen, we have a lot of um, members here, so we're just going to go right to the questions. And you said, can I speak for just five minutes? Mm-hmm. Okay. And he goes, oh, well, okay. And then you give an unbelievably great five minutes. <laughs> and now he's madder. And all the Republicans <laughs> are just mad because you guys have just been so good. And so now you ask questions in the order that you came to the skiff, the senators do. And the Republicans ask questions, and every question they ask just gets batted away. Boom, boom, boom. They're getting, it's getting tense in the damn room. And um, so I'm thinking like, you know, gosh, if someone could break the tension a little bit. So I get called on. And I don't know if you remember this because this is not a very good joke at all. <laughs> but I, I said, I, let me try something. So I said, and, and you remember that the uh, Supreme Leader had been characterizing the deal differently than it than it really uh, different than it really was, and but no Republican had asked that yet, and I wanted to give you guys a chance to knock that down. So I said something like, "I said uh, now uh, let me ask you a question about the Supreme Leader, who I like to call the Supreme Being." <laughs> you laughed harder than that deserves, <laughs> but the whole place ex- exploded with laughter, and which confused me completely because I know. 
a good joke and I know eh, a mildly amusing thing. But it explodes with laughter and the fucking tension came got out of the room. And so the, as we're leaving, I get like people patting me on the back <laughs> for this eh, joke. And like I have, I won't say who the senator's name is, but I have one senator. We're walking back to subway. He said, "Can I use that joke in my state?" <laughs> and I said, uh, "Sure, sure." He goes, "Why is it funny?" <laughs> I said, "Well, it's kind of it's kind of funny because Supreme Leader is so absurd. We wouldn't call any of our in the United States. We wouldn't call someone the Supreme Leader." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. All day. I'm getting senators coming up to me. That was great. That was great, great. So we have votes like at 4 or 5 o'clock. I go into the chamber. Uh, still, you know, Marco Rubio. That was great. You know, you know this Chuck sees me. Boom. Heads right to me, Chuck Schumer. And he goes, I told the president your joke. <laughs> Supreme one. <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. Supreme being. And he goes, that's right, <laughs> supreme being. And then I say, but you told him supreme one. That's right. <laughs> and he didn't laugh. No. <laughs> and you told him it was my joke. Yes. <laughs> okay. that's, it's just fun, a story for me. First of all, I do remember the meeting, uh, and many others like it, uh, in both chambers. Uh, but I just say that when you talked about the various questions being batted away one after the other, uh, I think that um, that is one reason why uh, it wasn't long before the focus uh, of those opposed to the uh, to the agreement became not on the agreement itself, but on what the agreement was not. Uh, and what did they say it wasn't? Uh, it wasn't an agreement that solved all of the Middle Eastern problems. Oh, that's uh, right. That's and, right. Uh, and because uh, the money, the sanctions, it would go to yeah. their uh, Quds Force or the terrorists, and well, that was part of the part mm-hmm. of the argument, right? But uh, and um, uh, and the ballistic uh, missile, and of course, the uh, <laughs> point out that first of all, there are many many examples where, of course, one tries to solve. Uh, shall we say, the existential problem first as a foundation for doing more. It's exactly what President Reagan did uh, in the 1980s with, uh, with the, the nuclear weapons agenda uh, with, the, with the Soviets. Uh, the fact that we had so many problems with the Soviets didn't stop uh, President Reagan from trying to get an arms control uh, uh, agenda uh, in, in place, uh, number one. Number two, and we said it then, that as a reminder that uh, this was 2015, uh, the Russian incursion... Uh, in Crimea, uh, Ukraine was 2014. In other words, we already had a very, very difficult relationship with Russia. And Russia, of course, and then there's part Russia of the P5 going, plus one. Go, And going into Syria, uh, and Russia went into Syria in 2015. Imagine trying to work with yeah, Russia as part of the P5 plus 1 or E3 plus 3 uh, and saying, well, we're going to resolve all the problems in the Middle East, like Iran and Syria, for example. Right. Uh, <laughs> okay. Complete, complete non-starter. Uh, and so the whole idea is, uh, again, you bite off this piece, which is everyone keeps saying is the biggest concern. The president, for example, right now, he keeps emphasizing the nuclear weapon issue in Iran, not all the other 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 issues. But so, so does you, this you get that, and that? then you and then you build out. 
Yeah, and so the right Iranians now... Iranians have already violated the agreement, but just by a little. Well, excuse me. What's their strategy? Uh, but, but we have to start out by... We violated. The Americans <laughs> violated uh, it uh, yeah, okay. uh, last May, uh, and now uh, the Iranians have taken these two steps, and I don't want to minimize it, but certainly at a technical level, as you say, it's, it's not material. But it is, a, it is a, a violation of the agreement, and frankly, I think what they're doing is, uh, and they, they more or less say it, that they are calling attention to their capability of of breaking the agreement. And I think it's principally to put pressure on the Europeans. Did you ever meet the Supreme Leader? No, no. Oh, okay. Of course, we, we never went to Iran. Uh, we have no diplomatic relationships oh, right, right, with Iran, right. so we always met in, in Europe. Right. And what, Geneva or Vienna? Where, where... Uh, Geneva, Lausanne, uh, 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 basically Switzerland, for the framework mm-hmm. agreement, which was in early April of 2015, then we moved to Vienna to get from that mm-hmm. to mid-July. Must be the, nice for the final agreement. <laughs> yes, it was very, it was very relaxing, <laughs> especially those last 19 consecutive days uh, that John Kerry and I spent in Vienna. Right. Yeah, but it's Vienna. Must be nice. That's what we say that in Minnesota a lot. That's right. Yeah, a lot of people. It's a little bit of a passive-aggressive thing. Yeah, um, uh, which I can understand, but um, uh, Vienna isn't quite uh, what you might think uh, when you end end your talks at midnight or one a.m. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Right. No, you guys were working real hard, and and thank you for that. And I wish, uh, uh, I wish, you know, what? I kind of wish that President Trump hadn't won the election. Let's be frank. I'm going to say it. I'm going to come out and say it right here. Uh, but I would say, in, in a serious vein, but I'm, but I'm very concerned. Well, I'm about being it. very serious. I yeah, no, do no, not no, wish. I know. I, uh, I, I, uh, I, I, uh, and and what I what I would add is that what what is very concerning to me is um, the long run challenges that are being created uh, by weakening our alliances, oh, uh, yeah. weakening international financial institutions. I think, frankly, the uh, the technical term, rather willy-nilly application of sanctions, which started before this administration, but has certainly taken on <laughs> an accelerated uh, tone. Uh, I think we are jeopardizing our standing um, in the in the international financial uh, structures because I think a lot of countries are getting a little bit tired of this. Yeah, especially when you see that we can wield the weapon even against our allies. I want to ask you one thing about nuclear, Secretary Perry. Okay, kind of famously, I think, didn't understand that the energy secretary was in charge of our nuclear arsenal and nuclear power plants. And were you able to talk to him? Did you guys have dinner? Did you guys meet? Did you kind of catch him up on what the job was? Sure, we we spoke. And and frankly, I think our discussions were helpful in some ways. Uh, For Mm -hmm. example, uh, despite the incoming administration uh, policy of not having uh, holdovers from the Obama administration, he did uh, go to the go to the mat and and have the head of the nuclear weapons program, uh, General Klotz, uh, held over. Uh, General Klotz uh, stayed for uh, over over a year, uh, basically, which I think was helpful. Also, I have to say that, you know, uh, for Secretary Perry, uh, you know, he also had famously talked about uh, closing uh, the, Depart- the Department of Energy right. um, some years uh, back. Uh, I thought he handled that in the confirmation hearing very well. He didn't wait for questions. He just flat out said, I was wrong. 
that now that I know much more about the department, uh, having had all the briefings, uh, that I was just plain wrong, and uh, I'm looking forward to this job. So, What a genius strategy, that. bringing right. that up before he's asked about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did. Right. Yeah, of course you... Right. Okay. In Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, I don't know if you read that book, but it talks about the transitions, mm-hmm. and part of it is in the energy department. And normally when there's a transition, there's like, uh, you know, all these people who work in the energy department, there's a day in which like 30 people from the incoming uh, team meets with them and gets these briefing books and talk, yeah. and they didn't do that. No, it didn't happen. It, did, it just did not happen. It did not happen, and one day somebody showed up. No, uh, initially one person. That was after quite some delay. I'm afraid that the description of the transition uh, in Michael Lewis's book is quite accurate. <laughs> okay, and, and part of that is all this person asked for was the names of people who had gone to climate meetings. Uh, yes, that was asked for. I took it upon myself to just make a decision to that no, that we're not gonna not gonna do that. And you, you were still the secretary. Oh sure, I'm still the secretary. So, yeah. So, that's right. So at that and, point uh, you're going, why uh, would I do that? Well, because we, see, we had uh, our our instructions from the president was was to be completely open. Uh, this was well well before the election to be completely open who, to whoever won uh, their their team. I didn't ask the White House. I just said no. This is this is this is beyond the line, and and we will not do it. And then, frankly, uh, to be honest, uh, those who asked for it in the transition team were then reprimanded by the central transition team, uh, if nothing else, because it was pretty bad press uh, right. uh, there. I want to make sure there's no confusion uh, that that is not to be laid at the feet of Secretary Perry because he was he was not not right. involved with that, uh, and frankly, he knew. I mean, you know, he's a, obviously a p- politically savvy from 13 years as governor, he's the longest serving governor in yeah, Texas. That's right, and uh, and he understood. He's a charming guy, and he understood that he was being hurt by this. Uh, when he came in, it was not going to help him with the career staff, for example, right. uh, for all this to happen. And let's just say he took action on day one. You don't hear much of him yeah. from him. He's not right. very high profile. Mm-hmm. Why do you suppose that is? Uh, I, I think the um, uh, members of the cabinet uh, who have remained in place uh, have shared that characteristic. <laughs> uh, it, it, oh, so you're saying it might be because the president has some, well, I don't we, want to well, say we, narcissism, I don't want to say that, well, we, we know grandiosity or insanity. Well, we know, that, there, we know that there is, there is uh, not, not a lot of process in the way the administration mm-hmm. operates, and uh, so it's... Um, so you know, now that I being, think of it, you don't see a lot of... Yeah. A lot of anybody in the cabinet. Now there's a lot of acting. Well, I mean, I think I think the, I think one one exception because of the of the requirements of the job and things like now the debt limit and uh, et cetera. Uh, I think Secretary Nuchin is 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 at least periodically quite uh, quite prominent. Uh, right. Also involved in trade issues and the like. And, and saying we won't turn over his taxes. We, we see <laughs> we see that every once in a while. Right. right. So you have these. Two initiatives that you are the CEO of, mm-hmm. uh, one on, on, on nuclear threats. Right. I remember Secretary Perry, uh, who was Defense Secretary, uh, B- wrote B- a book. B- yeah, Bill Perry. Yeah, Bill yeah, Perry. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, of course. Wrote a book, and he starts it off with 
a really scary scenario that happened, which is uh, NORAD seeing it was a yes. mistake of some Correct. sort, but seeing Correct. some uh, Soviet at the time. We've had more than one between us, us and, and the Soviet Union, right? And you got to decide if they're actually doing it, if they've launched. I got like five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. Yeah, let's call it five to 10, yeah. Yeah. Not, which is not a very good situation. <laughs> no, I've got Put it five, mildly. <laughs> yeah, and then if you're wrong, you're the one who started World War III. Yeah. And, but if you're wrong in the other direction, hundreds of millions of Americans are probably dead. There are, man, there are many factors that are making those risks even higher. Uh, for example, we live in the new world of cyber attacks. Mm -hmm. There could be cyber attacks on the command and control system. Sure. Uh, it's not about l directly launching the missile, but maybe it's confusing the information that's coming down. Mm -hmm. uh, then, of course, we have what you might call the steps towards militarization of space. We've had now other countries, even India, testing anti-satellite uh, China, weapons. of course, is. and of course China, but even even India now is is in that is in that business. Uh, maybe people forget how much we depend upon communications Satellite. and and obviously satellites. So there are a whole bunch of also technology issues. Another one is uh, Russia and China, uh, and of course the United States as well, uh, are developing uh, hypersonic delivery systems, flying more than five times the speed of sound. That does not open up. Uh, the uh, the time window for for response, shall we say, it compresses it further. So there's a lots of technology developments also that are working in the opposite direction, which is one reason why at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, we work a lot on this issue of how can we increase decision time for everyone, uh, not not just our president, but but everyone, to try to restore uh, strategic stability. Uh, we are very concerned about uh, heading to these kind of more unstable situations. We're also concerned that uh, because of the many troubles, if you like, uh, with Russia and in particular uh, with you know the Mueller report, the, the, all the uncertainty around uh, the, the president's interactions with, uh, with, uh, with Russia, things like crisis management mechanisms that were very robust during the Cold War, they're just very, very weak right now. So there's a lot of risk about you know mis something miscalculations uh, leading to to escalatory behavior. Right. It, what about this idea of a space force that the president keeps talking about? Can well, have... again, I'm I am my personal view is I don't see why we need that, and quite the contrary. I mean, we could always increase our. Uh, our focus on it uh, within within the Air Force, let's say. What I'm concerned about is a signal about militarizing space. Yes, and uh, and this is another it, long slippery slope. Is it is it possible though that that is a response to the Chinese saying, "Stop, you know, let's get a treaty, but you can't have these things, uh, these weapons that kill satellites. You've got to stop doing that." Is there any well, possibility that this is a really smart? thing that Trump is doing. I suppose it's a possibility, but uh, I don't, I don't, this is a case where I think the military is actually pushing hard uh, for this. I think it's a mistake. They are. Yeah. They want a space force. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a mistake. We need to think about space, obviously. I think we need to uh, develop uh, norms, at least norms, if not, if not treaties, uh, that have a whole bunch of things in space off base 
because we can't afford to have anybody blinded to what's right. to what might be happening with regards to nuclear launches and the like. And that's that's what it is. And that's that's what what could happen. Not and and that's not even to mention uh, the possible addition of weapons in space, which would be a true militarization of space. You know, I really admire you so much. Uh, probably should have said that at the outset, but um, I think it, it, it was evident. I want to thank you for your friendship. Great pleasure. Yeah, that was uh, Ernie Moniz, uh, former uh, Secretary of Energy. Thanks, Ernie. Good, thank you. Well, there you have it. That uh, that was former Energy Secretary uh, Ernest Moniz. You can see how, how stupid uh, he was. And uh, speaking of stupid, uh, Leo Kotke. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful theme. Uh, I want to thank him. Peter Ogburn is our uh, producer. And I uh, hope you uh, uh, listen uh, next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.